Heavenly Father, um, we mark today like we mark every Sunday by remembering the resurrection of Christ, and yet we get to have a renewed focus in it. So whether this is the 87th Easter Sunday that we've celebrated as believers in Christ, whether this is the first Sunday we've ever stumbled into a church, we're not even sure how we ended up here. God, what we need is that the Spirit would make the power of a defeated grave and a resurrected Christ real to us. Make what Jesus accomplished stunning to us. Make it loud. Make it reverberate in our hearts, our souls, our minds, even our bodies right now. The tomb is empty, that he is not here, that he is alive. Might that give us hope and joy and courage and confidence and delight and rest and comfort and a million other things that the resurrection of Christ secures. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Uh, Most people of a certain vintage remember the Ford Pinto. Anyone? Ford Pinto. When I was a kid, that was the punchline of about every single joke. It was a car that was rushed to market to be economical, but they, they cut a bunch of corners. They put this car in the market. It, it was, it was um, by one car review, called it a fiery burning death trap. Um, <laughs> it's practically, it, it was. It was dangerous. Um, I came across, I didn't know this part, so I knew that growing up. Came across the marketing slogan that Pinto used to market their car. Their commercials, their print ads said something like this, the closer you look, the better we look. (laughs) That's terrible marketing. The closer you look, the better we look. I don't know anybody that would agree with that and the Ford Pinto, but churches around the world right now, billions of Christians would look at the resurrection of Christ and say, oh, the closer you look, the better it looks. Gathered around King Jesus saying, oh, the closer you look, the better he looks. The the more you stare, the more you gaze, the more you hear, the more you know, you will not walk away disappointed. Today we're going to look at two very specific things the resurrection offers. There's so many more. But we'll look at two things that are absolutely life-changing. The resurrection of Christ does these two things. It'll give you no guilt in life and no fear in death. If you're able to stand for the reading of God's word, would you stand with me? We're going to bounce around quite a bit in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, um, but I'll just read from verse 12 through, through 20. Now, if Christ is proclaimed is raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We've been found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. 
If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Feel free to grab a seat. Those few verses tell us a lot about how crucial the resurrection of Jesus is, and they do so by way of contrast, saying if, this sort of big if statement. If Christ has not been raised from the dead, here's all the things that you lose. And I'm not gonna do an apologetic, I'm not gonna give a defense for the resurrection of Christ. I would love to talk with anyone after this service about that. I just wanna talk about what we get because Christ has been raised And we could unpack each of these verses, but today we'll focus on just a few of them, starting with verse 17. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. And you're still in your sins. Your faith is counterfeit. That it's false. That it's fake. Still remember shopping for Katie's engagement ring, going to the jeweler, having no idea what I was doing. I was 20 years old, um, going to buy a, a diamond. Now, I know, like, I didn't know about diamonds and conflicts and all those things back then, so now just translate it to Bellingham 2023, it'd be like quinoa and hummus that had been dehydrated and blessed by, like, a, you know, a rescue cat. So, so <laughs> you, you go wherever you want with the illustration, but I was sitting there, they gave me the four C's, you know, color cut and clarity and, and carrot, and they brought out a number of different diamonds, these little jewels, because I was, I was a designer at the time, so I was designing the band, but you know, I needed the diamond, and so I designed the band, and they brought out these diamonds. Which one do you want to go in it? And each of the diamonds that they, they brought out, they, I was like, I don't know what I'm looking at, and they give me the four C's, but then he says, okay, look at this. This is a certificate of authenticity. This thing has been studied by the Gemological Institute of the Globe, I don't know. It, prob- it was probably fake too. But, 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 but he told me it was real. And he said, look at this. And he says, this is how you know it has value. Because it's got this certificate. This proves that it's real. The resurrection of Christ is God's certificate that says the cross worked. That your faith is real. And because your faith is real, what this verse says then is you are no longer in your sins. All who have trust in Christ are no longer in their sins. If you are in Christ, you are no longer in your sin. That is a stunning idea. Another way to say it would be this, you are no longer seen as guilty before a holy God. No guilt in life. That phrase comes from a song written in 2000 by Stuart Townsend and Keith Getty. The song is In Christ Alone, one we have sung many times, one we will sing today. It tells the story of the gospel, the good news, the announcement of how God comes and rescues people desperately needy. It tells that story in one song. It walks through what's known as the incarnation that Jesus came to earth and was born as a baby and lived the life we were meant to live. And then it tells of his crucifixion where he went to the cross to substitute himself in the place of all those who would trust. And then he was buried and then gloriously he rose up. That's what we are celebrating here today, that Jesus got up out of the groom as the certificate, as the declaration, as the receipt that it worked. Quoting the song, there in his ground his body lay, light of the world by darkness, and then bursting forth in glorious day. Up from the grave, can you help me with the next line? Up from the grave, he rose again. And as he stands in victory, sin's curse 
has lost its grip on me. For I am his and he is mine, bought with the precious blood of Christ. I want you to hear where all of that crescendos after these verses and they build in the song, the final verse and the first sentence captures what we have because Jesus rose and we'll put it up on the screen because it's just so good. I don't want you to miss it. No guilt in life, no fear in death. Imagine that. Just pause. Not this gnawing sense, not this burden of condemnation, not this worry about what this afternoon or tomorrow or next week or headlines bring, all because of what Jesus has done. It's so good. How does something so good like that happen? The song answers that question through the song. We'll look at verse two quickly. In Christ alone, who took on flesh, became born, fullness of God and helpless babe, this gift of love and righteousness scorned by the ones he came to save. He came to do it not for good people, for all people. Till on that cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied for every sin on him was laid. Here in the death of Christ I live. Now there's a phrase in that song that some people push back against. It's the, the, but without it, I suggest to you, you will not have no guilt in life. The phrase is the wrath of God was satisfied. In 2013, a hymn committee of a, what's known as a mainline denomination in the United States was was had a, uh, they were trying to put out a new hymnal, and so they were reviewing songs, very, very wise. We sing our theology, often our songs, they get in our hearts in very deep ways. It's why it matters what we, we sing, and so I respect so much this committee sitting about evaluating and assessing songs, but when they came to the song that they wanted to include into their hymnal, they didn't want to put that phrase, the wrath of God was satisfied, and so they changed it. They said, till on the cross as Jesus died, the love of God was magnified. And it was. But when they asked the songwriters for permission to do this, they they actually said, respectfully, no, we're very humbled that you would want to include our song in your hymnal, but no, because we think in doing so, you are removing the most glorious way that God's love was magnified and that Jesus did for us what we cannot do for ourselves. That Jesus, the guiltless one, became guilty so all the guilty ones can live free now. And if you take out the wrath of God, the just judgment for our guilt, you just lose it. God's wrath, it sounds so terrible, and it is serious. It's not irate. It's not flippant. It's not like a parent that gets mad at their kids. It's his holy judgment for sin. And, and I've said this a lot recently. And I think it's very true. We are a culture bent on justice. We want justice, and rightfully so. Whatever version you have of that, you find your tribe, you find your group, and you say, we want justice. We want justice, except when we talk about God. Sometimes we recoil at that idea, but the the problem is there is real guilt. As verse 17 says, it uses the word sin. But the glory of God's grace is this. God provides a way out, not by excusing it, ignoring it, minimizing it, playing it down, 
which doesn't work if we're honest when we sit there and we look at our past and we look at our present, we think about the things that we've done, the things we've said, the things we've not done, the things we wish we did, the things, we've, the things we don't want anyone to know. We, see, we, we can't escape it by just ignoring it. We can't work our way out of it. But here's what God does. He pays for it. He pays for it. Sophomore year of, um, of college, I went to Western. Go Vikings. Um, Lived in your typical Bellingham rental house. There was eight of us, I believe, at that time in a, in a one-bathroom house. Uh, half the time, the bathroom didn't work. We lived over by the AM, PM, and uh, so we would just use their bathroom. We, we were, all of us were, like, too lazy to call the landlord. Could you come fix the one toilet that's broken? So... Um, so we did that for months and months and months. We, we were trying to scrape, you know, you're scraping by, you're living on nothing. So to save money, we decided to not turn the heat on. We didn't set up power. We just didn't set it up. And so we'd sit in our house in hats and gloves and there'd be ice on the windshields. And so, you know, it, it was, it was nicknamed the barn, um, smelled like one. And, uh, this might be why this happened, but one day I came home from, from campus and one of the roommates had moved out. <laughs> it just disappeared, like thin air. He literally, like, he waited till we were all gone. He packed up all of his stuff and left. Now, it could have been the power. It could have been the bathroom. It could have been whatever it was. But beyond just being sad that a friend would just take off, no note, no nothing, no nothing, just took off, we had to then deal with the fact that we had to cover his rent. See, the bill was coming due. It didn't matter. The landlord didn't really care. He didn't care who was actually in the house. He said, there's an agreement that I have, and you will deal with the agreement. You will pay the bill. Now, we could have gone after him to try to collect it. We didn't know where it was. We, you know, we could have tried to find it, but what we had to do is absorb the debt. A debt always has to be paid, either by the one that rung it up or by the one that it's owed. Our guilt is real, our sin is real, but the glory of God's grace is this. Jesus pays our debt by taking our guilt. When we sing the wrath of God was satisfied, we are saying the cross is deep and wide and long and deep enough to deal with all of our junk, all of our sin, all of our foolishness, every misstep. I shared a few months ago about a famous singer. I think she was at Madison Square Garden and she was singing what is an even more famous hymn than In Christ Alone, the, the song Amazing Grace. And she changed the lyric. So we have a tendency to do this. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved us someone like me. But that's not as sweet a sound. When we minimize who we are before a holy God. The cross is lessened. The grace of God is lessened. We need it less. But when you can sing it as it was originally written by a slave trader who had come to Christ and wrote these lyrics, this is the thing you have to believe if you can live your life as a former slave trader without condemnation crushing you every day. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound, and help me out with this, that saved a, a wretch. That's how you get to a no guilt in life. When you finally get so emptied of yourself, 
You say, all of my standing, all of my rightness before God, it has nothing to do with my trophies, my resume, my accomplishments. And I know in this room, there's a lot of trophies, great resumes, and a ton of accomplishments. I know that. But when the deepest, the darkest, the worst stuff we know has been absorbed by Christ, because he rose from the dead, we have the certificate that says our, we are no longer in our sins. Saved a wretch like me, you can pile up all your guilt. Pile it all up, your past, your present, your future, and know that it is no match for Jesus' grace. Martin Luther is credited, uh, lived 500 plus years ago, is credited as kicking off what's known as the Protestant Reformation. He was a monk who rediscovered grace in some very profound ways. And he's, he's got a mixed bag. God draws straight lines with crooked sticks. Praise God, because we all got stuff. So not everything about him is great, but, but he's got some of the best stories. And one of the stories he had, he had a lot of visions and dreams and different things, and he had been laboring away up in this like tiny little room in the backside of, I don't know if it was like a tavern or a castle or what it was, but he's up there and he's translating the Bible into German. At this point, the Bible wasn't given in the people's tongue. It wasn't given in the people's heart language. And so he was taking the Bible and he's trying to put it into German. And he's up there laboring and laboring. And at one point, he dozes off. He falls asleep. And in his dream slash vision, he gets this picture of the devil coming to him. And the devil pulls out a scroll. And on the scroll, it says, the sins of Martin Luther. And the devil begins to read the sins. One after another, he just continues to unroll this massive scroll, one after another of his past and his present. And at some point, Martin asks, the devil says, are you done yet? And the devil says, no. And he keeps reading and reading. Here's this thing you did when you were 12. Here's this thing you said when you were 17. Here's this thing you didn't do that you should have done when you were 23. Here's this thing that happened this morning. And he just, he's going through and, okay, are you done? No. And he keeps reading and reading. And then finally he says, are you done? And the devil says, yes, I'm done. And Luther looks at him. And, and this is how you can respond when you know the grace of God can save a wretch like anyone. He looks at him and says, oh, wait, wait, wait. So you're done. Oh, all of it's true. He just says, everything you said is true. And there's so much more, but you forgot one thing. At the top of the scroll is marked this, the blood of Jesus covers all the sin. No guilt in life. The understanding what Jesus did allows you to sing another hymn written in 1873 by Horatio Spafford, my sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole it's nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. All that stuff that wants to weigh you down and drag you down and bury you. Oh, I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Oh, my soul. No guilt in life. Second phrase, no fear in death. Eugene Lang um, was a self-made multimillionaire. He ended up giving over $150 million away to various charities before he died. I think he was in his early 90s when he passed away. What set him on that trajectory, though, was something that happened in June of 1988, 1981, when he became kind of this heart towards serving and caring for other people. He was set to deliver a commencement speech to 61 sixth graders at a public school in New York City. 
And as he was preparing to do his, his talk, he had this talk of kind of motivation of self-effort and hard work, and if you stay committed, you'll, you'll get there. The principal mentioned that statistically, almost none of these kids will even graduate high school. And so as he's looking at his, his notes, he decides to scrap his, his talk. And as he stands in front of these 61 sixth graders, he simply says this, if you stay in school, I will pay your college tuition. He was inspired by Martin Luther's incredible message, sermon, I have a dream. He says, you have to have a dream. And he says, if you stay in school, I will pay for your tuition. And there's a ton of stories about how he brought in tutors and different things to be a part of their community. And after the speech, the principal, he pulls him aside and told him that only one to two students would maybe even take him up on the offer out of 61. Fast forward a number of years, 90% of those sixth graders graduated high school. Over 60% went off to college. You can ask this question, what made the difference? Hope. They had hope. Finally, they had hope. One of the students said this, I had something to look forward to. Something was waiting for me. Let me read verses 18 and 19. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. That's if in Christ we have hope. In this life only we are, of all people, most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. It's saying that death doesn't win. It's saying because Christ got out of the grave, you have something to look forward to. You have, you have something to, to set your gaze and your life on that, that, that will help you push through whatever derailments, whatever worries, whatever fears, whatever calamities, whatever frustrations, whatever's mundane, whatever's boring, whatever's disappointing, whatever's discouraging. This is what this text is saying. The resurrection of Christ is saying, this isn't it, and death doesn't win. You have the ultimate thing to look forward to. It's a resurrection hope, so resilient that death can't take it. Death doesn't win. And this life isn't it. Death is not normal. I know we get conditioned to think this because we're so surrounded by atrophy. It's our bodies. And... But death's not normal. It's a robber. It's an intrusion. It's a villain. In 1 Corinthians 15, it's called three different things. It's called a curse. It's called the wages uh, or the payment for, for sin, the result of rebellion. It's also called the last enemy that needs to be destroyed. Tim Keller in his book, Making Sense of God, says this, death was not part of God's original design. We were not created to age, to weaken, to fade and die. We are not created for love relationships that end in death. Death is an intrusion, a result of sin and our human race is turning away from God. Our sense even now that we were made to last, that we were made for love without parting is a memory trace of our divine origins. We are trapped in a world of death, a world to which we were not designed. Happy Easter. Um, you know, I'll be honest with you, I, I cut that out, put it in, cut it out, put it in, asked my wife to like listen to me talk through this thing for hours, just like, should I talk about this or not? It kind of feels like Easter's like pastel colors and, you know, jelly beans and, you know, but it's raining outside, so let's just talk about something sad. That's <laughs> about Easter dresses and great hats and joy. But think about it. To the extent you see what Keller is saying, you see one of the biggest reasons the resurrection is such unbelievably good news. That death is dead. 
Hang with me a bit longer. This will not be encouraging, but it will get there. I hope and I pray. Here's Michael Whitmer, what he says from his book, The Last Enemy. You are going to die. Take a moment and let that sink in. You are going to die. One morning the sun will rise and you won't see it. Birds will greet the dawn and you won't hear them. Friends and family will gather to celebrate your life and after you're buried, they'll return to the church for ham and scalloped potatoes. <laughs> I thought, <laughs> it didn't hit me until I just read that. What we're having this afternoon is ham and scalloped potatoes. <laughs> so if I go out, <laughs> you heard it here first. Um, and you're not trying to be flippant. Oh, death is, there's sorrow. There's like, but it's real talk. And you don't have to just accept it. It's an enemy. And it's why the resurrection gives so much hope that death doesn't have the final say. Death doesn't have the final say. Death does not win. An Easter service, this is the first time I've ever thought about it. An Easter service is a sort of memorial service for death. We're here to celebrate the death of death. Had a good run, but he doesn't win. 1 Corinthians 15, 26 says this, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Verses 50 through 57 say this, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. For the perishable body must put on the imperishable and the mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through the Lord Jesus Christ. No fear, no guilt in life, no fear in death. I want you to imagine like a, a dad driving with his young son down Van Dyke Road out in the county in a great classic truck on a warm summer day. Oh, that sounds good, doesn't it? Windows are down, the breeze is coming in. And then a honeybee buzzes into the cab. The young son begins to absolutely freak out because he is deathly allergic to the sting of a bee. So the father calmly just reaches out and he grabs the honeybee in his fist. And he holds him for a few seconds. And then he lets it go. But the honeybee begins to buzz around again, and the son, again, is absolutely freaked out. If he gets stung, he dies. So the father, he reaches out his hand again, but this time he doesn't grab the bee. He just opens up the palm of his hand, and he says, look, son, the stinger's in my palm. I've taken all the poison. I've taken all the venom. All the bee can do now is buzz around and annoy you. John Owen has one of my favorite lines about the death of Christ. It says, when death stung Christ, it stung itself to death. For those in Christ, there's no venom left. There's no, there's no poison. There, there, there's no ultimate announcement. Death doesn't win. 
because Jesus lives, because the tomb is empty, death is like a bee buzzing around, annoying us. But it can't actually harm us. There is no guilt in life and there is no fear in death. And, and part of what that does, it helps us not just face death, it actually helps us live now um, it, it, differently. It helps us live with this, this hope um, that there's a future beyond the grave. The resurrection, it may not, you know, you may not get the job you want, the career you want, the life you want, the vacations you want, the relationships you want, the food you want, the retirement. You may not get those things now, but this is just a blip. This is just a, a blink. There's a whole new world coming. There's a future beyond the grave. 1 Corinthians 42 and 43 capture this. This, this, this idea of a, of a new creation is, is coming. A new creation that's marked by things like this. There's no death. There's no tears. There's no sickness. There's no sorrow. There, there's no out of sorts with my, my body. There, there's connection between my brain and my, my heart in healthy and whole ways. There's no cancer. There's no racism. There's no wars. There's no poverty. There's no homelessness. There's no loneliness. There's no hunger. There's no famine. There's no natural disasters. There's none of it. But what's left is feasting and joy and celebrating and life and laughter and honesty is easy. And relationships are life-giving. And at the center of all of it is Jesus, our resurrected king. You know, do a little thought experiment with me. Think about the best meal you've ever had with the best company. Some of you are like, well, I could never put those together. I had good company over here. I, you know, okay. I, got I, I feel you. Probably for me, I go back to a meal my wife and I had, I had on our honeymoon. We were up at Whistler, and we're, we had just turned 22. We're young, had no money, but we just splurged. We're at this restaurant, fanciest restaurant we'd ever been in. I actually tucked in my shirt for the restaurant. I didn't do it for Easter Sunday. I probably should have. Um, we're in this restaurant, we sit down, and, and I mean, it was just incredible. All the courses, all these things, and as we're ordering, someone said, oh, would you like this sommelier, you know, fancy word for wine guy, to come and, and help you figure out what you want to, to pair with your meal? And my wife was kind of like, no, you know, we, we don't, you know, she's like, well, we don't have the money for that. I said, yes, we do. Because at the wedding reception, someone had slipped $100 in my pocket and said, buy a really nice bottle of wine. Shout out to Ted Lucia. So he put 100 bucks, and I sat there, and I said, yes, bring me the best bottle you got. Make it 100 bucks. You know? And he's, uh, <laughs> I felt so cool. <laughs> And it was, it was great. And the, the, the dessert and the coffee with all the little shavings of chocolate. I mean, it was absolutely stunning. You know, or think about the best concert you've ever been to. Mine was swell season down at the Paramount about 15 years ago. Or the best moment ever watching sports. For everyone in Western Washington, it was Beastquake. I mean, that was this moment watching Marshawn Lynch just run and run and rumble, and it created an earthquake in Seattle because it was so incredible. They're all just an appetizer. All of that, it's good. Oh, it's wonderful. The Lord has put so many pleasures and joys in this world, but they're just to give us a foretaste of the world to come. I love this line from Tim Keller. It says this, 
all death can now do to Christians is make their lives infinitely better. Let that land on you for a second. Because Christ got out of the grave. Because their death has been defeated. Because the sting is gone. Because the new creation is coming. And I don't say this flippantly. Oh, there is sorrow. There is sorrow in the face of death. Because we know it's an enemy. But all death can now do to Christians is make their lives infinitely better. Now that is resurrection hope. You know, think about what that student said again, that the graduated, that kept going. I had something to look forward to. You have something to look forward to that is beyond college being paid for. For a Christian, all of your best days are future. All of them are future. No guilt in life, no fear in death. There's one other phrase, though, that sums up, or the, that the song in Christ Alone um, uses to finish the lyric. Help me out if you can with it. Help me out with how this line actually goes. No guilt in life, no fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me. We'll do it again. I was my fault. I didn't set you up well. No guilt in life, no fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me. The reason I want to bring that in is that the incredible promise of no guilt and no fear is made even better because it's not dependent upon you. It's completely dependent upon Christ. This isn't a strategy to follow. It's not a self-help plan to try to make everything better. This isn't advice. This is news. That's what we're reading in this text. It's an announcement of something done by another that saves you. Reuben Torrey was a pastor and preacher from the 19th century who is also a mountaineer. Loved to go mountain climbing, particularly ice climbing. And he was out on a climb. He was part of a, I don't know if it's an expedition or, but the number of people kind of roped together and they're, they're climbing a, a frozen waterfall. And there's another team of, of five men that are climbing next to him. And he said, as they were climbing, he saw the other team. He saw the last guy at the very bottom of, of the rope because they're all roped together as they're making this ascent up this, this ice waterfall. He says he saw him begin to slip his foot began to slip, his crampons began to give way, the, the ice axe began to, to come out, and he fell. And as he's falling to the abyss below him, his, his rope connected to the, the climber above him began to pull on that climber and pulled the second climber off with him. And as that climber fell, then the third climber got pulled off, and this this. He's just watching this happen. And then what he saw is he saw the, the top climber, the fifth climber, the strongest climber, the biggest climber, the most experienced climbers on the very top. He looks below him and he sees what's happening. He sees what's about to come. And so before all of the weight got to him, before the fourth climber fell off, he, he takes his ice axe, he wedges it into the, to the, the wall, is, is, is firm as he can, and he holds and he grips. He, he gets his feet set. He gets everything, and he braces himself for what was about to come. The fourth climber falls off, and now all of this weight comes cracking down on this fifth climber who's on the top holding on with everything he has. And what Tori says is he saw the rope as it's around his neck and his waist, and, and it begins to choke him. He begins to bleed. You can hear the cracks from his ribs. But he held 
He held, and, and then he was able, with all of his strength, to do what these other climbers could not do. He began to help pull them, bring them up. He got them all to safety. Not a single one was lost. If you go to the beginning of chapter 15, you see the lifeline that Christ has offered. For I deliver to you of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. That's the rope that tethers us to Christ that we might get pulled into life and not plummet into death. And again, it's an announcement. It's a declaration of what he's done. And so the question is, if he's done it all, then what's left for us to do? Well, we saw it down, I believe, in verse 16, to have faith. We see it earlier in chapter 15, this word believe. See, the work for us to do today is not to do the saving. It's to trust the one that saves. It's not the one to try to pull everyone else up or ourselves. It's to trust the only one that can pull us up. It's to throw our lot, to, to, to cling to him, to lean into him alone, to throw all of our weight on that rope life and the death and the resurrection of Christ, knowing that it will hold. What's glorious about that is whether you believe the rope holds or not, it's either strong or it's not. It either saves or it doesn't. See, our salvation, our forgiveness, it doesn't depend on the degree of our belief. I guarantee those men dangling on that cliffside had a lot of doubts doesn't depend on the purity of our belief, the tenacity of our faith, the fervor of our faith, not even the consistency of our faith, but the object of our faith. Christ is that strong. His life, his death, his resurrection are that strong. The resurrection is that good. No guilt in life, no fear in death. This is the power of Christ in anyone that would believe. Let's pray. Father, we can understand the offer of salvation. We can understand what Christ has done. We can understand it logically. We can, we can read the text. We can unpack it. And oh, there's so much depth to it that we could dive into it forever. But we cannot come to believe it apart from your divine grace. So we ask now that you would grant all of us belief and all of us faith. There is not a single person in this room that is not on a continuum of unbeliever and believer. So we pray, we believe, help us to believe. As we walk from this place, we'll see that lived out as we feel condemned by the choices we make and I ask that you'd help us to believe there is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. We walk out with belief and we might face unbelief as we are faced with a diagnosis or news of, of sickness or worry or disease or a phone call or a headline. And we ask that you would help us in our unbelief. That we would know that in Christ there is no guilt in life and there is no fear in death. Because the tomb is empty. In Christ, he has done it. 
In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.